Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Sight preaches from Hebrews chapter 3 with a message called, The Lord Thy God. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews chapter 3. This time we were in Hebrews last week, but this week we're in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. This is the word of God to us this morning. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter into his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. So this morning I want to talk about unbelief. We find in both the Old Testament and in the, the new statements concerning the children of Israel being a very difficult people. The Bible says a perverse and a stiff-necked people. Well, why is that? A chosen people of God, because they were so slow to learn that simple lesson, I am the Lord thy God. I am the Lord thy God. We discovered this when we studied on Wednesday evening the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible or what the Jews call the book of the law. And God gave ten commandments to Moses and immediately he finds the Israelites building a golden calf as an idol. And from that moment on, more rules and priestly codes were added to their relationship with God. So to teach the lesson that the Lord was their God was the prime purpose of the wonders that were brought about at that first Passover night in Egypt when the Israelites were delivered out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of their bondage. And they had been told of a land flowing with milk and honey and no more toiling in, in bricks, in the brickyards, and no more cringing under the, the whip of the Israelites. Only rest, green pastures, milk and honey. These were the pleasures to which they were looking forward to when they waited for the signal on that dreadful night in Egypt. And it came about, finally, and they marched under the blood-stained lintels of their doors. It was only a ten days' journey from Ramsey to the foothills of Canaan. Had they taken a direct route, ten days and their troubles would be over. And yet, had they only known that the ten days were to stretch out into forty years of wandering the Canaan almost in sight, so near and yet so far, and all because of their unbelief, for they could not enter in until they had learned that lesson, I am the Lord thy God. It was only three days after their departure when they encamped at Pehairoth, between Migdol and the sea, with the mountains on either side, far off, they, they heard the sound of 
horses' hooves, and they realized that Pharaoh and his army were pursuing them. And now they were afraid, and they began to complain about having left Egypt. Here they were, caught in a, a trap, they thought, and, and doomed to death. And it seems not to have occurred to them at that point that the Lord was their God. And all they had to do was to stand still and see God's salvation. And the waves rolled back and made a way of escape. And all night long they fled before that rumbling of those chariot wheels of the Israelite army. And not one Israelite was lost. On the other side of the sea, they heard in the deep darkness the rolling back of the waters and the neighing of horses and the shrill cries of struggling men. And when day broke, the chariot wheels and the corpses of Pharaoh's men came floating to the shore. And then the song was raised, who is like unto our God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And now surely they had learned their lesson. Nevermore could they forget that the, the Lord was their God. And not long after, they pitched their tents under the shadow of Mount Sinai. And never in all of the course of history, except at Golgotha, have there been such manifestations of the, the presence of God and his deity as at that flaming mountain that day when Israel stood before God's mountain. The earth quaked and it trembled clouds gathered about the summit and the blackness was broken by vivid lightning strikes and the sound of a trumpet was heard becoming louder and louder from the heavens and be, but be, despite those awful phenomena that they witnessed there the people soon displayed their utter unbelief let's make us gods they cried and so they crafted a golden calf which typified the sacrifice in Egypt that was associated with all of the sorrows of their bitter bondage there. And it was the summer after the Exodus when they found themselves at Kadesh Berea on the very borders, the very borders of the promised land. And off in the distance were its green mountain slopes and nothing was needed but that they should go in and take possession but they hesitated. They thought we know what dangers might await us. So spies were sent and they searched out the land and they returned bringing with them grapes and pomegranates and other rich produce from the country. But said there are giants in that land and we are but small as grasshoppers in their sight. And then the voice of wailing, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Far better to have remained in bondage with our simple meal of leeks and lentil than to have come out here in the face of the certainty of death. But where was their confidence in God? The great lesson was still unlearned, brought on by unbelief. And they must still go round about by the way of the wilderness until they learned that the God that had created them and called them apart 
was the Lord their God. Now 38 years, 38 years have passed and gone and they are on the, the borders of Canaan. And all along their journey, they've been led by the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And not once has God forsaken them. Yet under a momentary trial, a small trial, they again give way to murmuring. The fiery serpents run through the camp. They're hissing and they're stinging. And the brazen serpent is lifted up and the word is shouted, look upon that serpent and live. And they are saved, but not yet convinced. They cannot enter in because of their unbelief. And once again, we see that they are a perverse and a stiff-necked people. But we're all alike, you see. There's no difference between them and us now. And we differ as to our sins, but in back of them all lies unbelief in God. Now think about how many lands of promise we've missed entering into because of our unbelief. And why is it that all are not partakers of this rich inheritance of the, the gospel of Christ? Well, it's because of unbelief. The Bible says this is the work of God, that you believe on him who hath sent. And here's the universal question, what shall I do to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? But back of that is another. What has God done to save me? A mother with her little child crossing an arm of the Syrian desert saw in the distance a, a huge approaching sandstorm. And she began to run as fast as she could, but Soon she realized that that sandstorm was about to overtake her. And she hastily scooped out a hole in the sand and into it she placed her child. And then she threw herself over top of that child and the storm swept past. And the mother died, but the child was saved. And that's the story of the cross. One died for all because all were under a sentence of death, that we might be saved through him. And the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that by his stripes we might be healed. Now returns the question, what must I do? And the answer is, believe, only believe. You look on your insert there, you'll see the first point. We are commanded to do so. We're commanded to do so. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it says, he that believes and is baptized, that is to say, makes confession of faith because with the heart man believes unto righteousness, the Bible tells us, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If we believe, we'll be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned, the Bible says, and I am the resurrection, it also says, and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
It also says, he that believes on the, the Son is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. It was probably a concern on all sides in as much as salvation is free of grace. I think all people would concede that. God has the right to affix to it any condition which he might be pleased to place upon our salvation. And that's the sole condition to, to believe in the only begotten Son of God. God has the right to set that as the condition. But number two in your notes, to believe is necessary in the nature of the case. We have to believe. We being made in the divine likeness are possessed of sovereign wills and God cannot force his grace upon us. Or more accurately, he chooses not to do so. If he constrains us, it must be with the, the cords of man, our own will. He did not force the children of Israel to partake of the manna which he had given them. It lay upon the ground in large portions. It was free. God had given it to them freely, absolutely free. And there was enough for all. But a man might walk through the camp with manna lying thick on both sides of him and yet die of starvation if he would not stoop down and take possession of it. Faith is not mere intellectual assent to fact. That's what faith is not. Mere intellectual assent. It's appropriation. You must receive it for yourself. It's the hand stretched out. It's the receiving Christ so that he might become ours. His life blending with our lives forevermore. And thirdly, it's possible for all to believe in Christ. It would be difficult to conceive of any other condition which would have placed the divine grace within reach of all of us. God might have required us to stand like St. Simeon Stylites, remember him, who stood on a pillar under the sun's summer rays and the, the storms of winter. For, for weary years he did that bound with a, a chain 20 cubits long. Or he might have commanded us to journey to some distant shrine as the, the Muslims do to that black stone of Kaaba. And it's safe to say that if such injunctions had been sealed to Christians with a required sacrifice or action on our part, we would have been inclined to obey them and as such, eternal life, even at such a cost, would be cheaply bought. But it's pleased God instead to make the way plain and easy for all. Only believe. The living bread is without price. We need only to take and to eat it. And what then? Well, the Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. A certain king, we're told in the, in the Bible, he made a marriage supper for his son. 
He provided a rich wardrobe in which were suitable garments for all who were invited to that feast. When all came together, he went in and out among the guests. And he found that there was one who had not put on the wedding garment. And the king said to the guest, friend, why have you not put on those wedding clothes? And he had nothing to say. He was speechless. And why? Because there was nothing that he could say. Cast him forth into the outer darkness, scripture says, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where men curse their unspeakable folly and rejecting the great blessing which has been laid out before them for the mere taking. But the lesson here is not for the impotent alone. We who possess to follow Christ We fall far short ourselves by reason of our measure of unbelief, of the higher life. It's a great thing to be saved from hell, but this is only the beginning of salvation. Salvation is a vast word and has in it all the treasures of the Christian life. There are maximum Christians and there are minimum Christians. And we may be whatever we will. The Bible reminds us that Lot was a good man. But you see, he pitched his tent too near the gates of Sodom. And when that message came, flee for your life, do not look back. He traveled to the mountains. And when he passed through the, the gateway of little Zor, he was bereaved. And he was poverty stricken as a man. You see, he had lost everything, herds, flocks, his beloved wife, earthly possessions. And we may be saved the the same way, or if we choose, we may have an abundant entrance into that celestial city that we call heaven. There's a vast possibility in the Christian life, and God help us to believe that we may attain it. But let's look now at the sad consequences, the consequences that are brought about by our unbelief. And that's point number four in your notes. By our unbelief, we are excluded from the promised land of peace. This is the inheritance which our master, our Lord, intended for us. The Bible says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And as we go on singing, when thou, my righteous judge, shall come to take thy ransomed people home, shall I among them stand? Shall such a worthless worm as I who sometimes am afraid to die, be found at thy right hand? Why do we not take him at his word? Didn't the Lord say that when you had placed yourself in his charge, no man could pluck you out of his hand? Did he not say, lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth? Is it not true there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus? 
Does this mean nothing? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, the Bible says? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. So I ask you, have you repented? Have you believed? Have you been baptized? Have you already committed yourself to Christ for Christ? And then take the master at his word and to, to rest in him. On that night when Jesus came walking to his disciples on the sea, Peter was moved to say to our Lord, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. And Christ, our master, said, come. And he set out bravely. But looking down on the churning waves, he began to sink and he cried, Lord, save me. And the hand was stretched out. And then the reproving word, O thou of little faith, why did you doubt? Do we long for that peace which moves above all the raging waves of doubt and worry? Then let us believe. Doubt cuts our strength. Doubt clips our wings and leaves us to flutter near the earth like wounded birds that should soar on high and, and sing. And then fifthly, by our unbelief, we are excluded from the promised land of character. And what is character? Character is Christ's likeness. And how do I attain it? By the imitation of Christ is the answer. We profess to believe in him as the, the chief among 10,000, as the Bible says, and the only altogether lovely. He is that perfect ideal of manhood in whom we are manifest all of our fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, godliness, and truth. If we believe in him that way, we will be ever following in his footsteps. And the world expects to see in us a reflection of the perfections of our Lord. And it's a reasonable requirement. The measure of our attainment to this Christ-likeness will be precisely the measure of our faith in equal measure. The Bible says, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. But six, Lastly, by our measure of unbelief, we are shut out from the Canaan of power and usefulness. At the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples were put to shame because they were unable to heal the demonic boy. The Lord came down out of the mountain and into their midst and his face shining and looking round upon his disciples, he said, O oh, you faithless ones, how long shall I bear with you? Afterwards, when they asked him, why could we not heal the boy? He, he answered, because of your unbelief. 
Then as they continue their journey, he said to them, If you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Be removed to another place, and it shall be moved. A grain of a mustard seed was the, the symbol of littleness, of smallness. But the mustard seed had in it the power of life. Even in its smallness, the lifting of a mountain was a symbol of impossibility. But in all things are possible to him who believes. It's not rhetoric. It's not hyperbole. It's truth. We are appointed to a great work. And the work of the kingdom of truth and righteousness. Do we believe in our divine appointment to that work? And have we an unwavering faith in its ultimate success? On Monday, September 10th, in 1807, a great crowd was assembled on the wharf at Albany, New York, to witness the trial trip of Robert Fulton's steamboat, the, the Claremont. And they called it Fulton's Folly. And he says that on that day he heard many sarcastic remarks. They were making great sport of him. But soon clouds of steam and smoke puffed from her smokestacks. The spray began to foam from her paddle wheels, and the first steamboat in history moved out into the river. And then the laughter ceased, and as the Claremont moved down the Hudson, her builder, standing on her deck, smiled as in the distance he heard the sound of cheering the secret of his success lay in the profound belief in his work. He knew that right principles were involved in the machinery that made up the Claremont. And that's faith that always wins. And our work is the bringing of the nations to the, the knowledge of Christ. And oh, how far a little faith in the outcome the outcome which rests upon the veracity of the living God. And let us believe that all the nations shall render differential respect to our Lord. Believing, we shall lend a hand and our lives will tell to the glory of God. And so what is the conclusion of this whole matter? Only believe. Believe. We enter the kingdom by faith. We walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. All things are possible to him that believes. And the Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to the lesson that you've given us in the Old Testament about your children and your will for them to believe that you were the Lord their God and to believe that by faith, and to see as we look back the countless times that you displayed yourself 
in majesty and power, and how often you rescued them, and how often they prayed to you, because they could pray to no other. And you revealed yourself to them as their Lord and God. But how often did that stiff-necked people display their unbelief? Lord, we find ourselves so often just like them, living in a life filled with promise by your love, by your sacrifice of your son, to return us to you, to redeem us, and to believe, Lord, that you alone hear our prayers and grant us what is in Christ's name. Lord, how often have we missed promised lands that you've set before us, goals that you've given us for our lives, and the uniqueness that you've created each of us, Lord. How often have we failed to enter into the promise that you've given us? How often do we display our own unbelief? And Lord, while our sins are different, the unbelief is the same. And we ask, Father God, help us in our unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.